This is The Drinking Giraffe from 1907. Bugatti is really an interesting figure in early 20th century art history and modern art. When you look at this work, it feels maybe like you think, what's modern about it? It looks very much like 19th century animal sculpture from an earlier century. But there's there's characteristics about this work that does make it very special and does make it very new. If you look at the surface, they're not smooth or perfected. He leaves a sense of his fingerprints in the surface. There's that sense of modeling that is still there. Um, Very much the sense of the artist at work with the act of making and creating in the clay and shaping that. And that surface lends a very sort of like a lively lifelike element. You almost have a sense that the creature is, is breathing or moving or is about to move. You almost imagine that there's a watering hole right in front of the giraffe, that something has caught his attention while he's drinking. He's captured that wonderful reflex posture with the slight curve of the neck as the animal tilts its head up. Pay attention to the legs of the animal and how they're articulated, how the hind legs are just slightly overlapping or kind of he's balancing himself, right? I mean... You don't need a photograph. He's captured it perfectly. This giraffe is actually, it was one of a pair. There was a baby that accompanied it. It was, we know that there was a baby. It exists in a very early photograph of one of the earlier owners, but along the way it was lost. Now, Bugatti worked in both Paris and Antwerp. He would go to Paris for short stays where he kept an apartment, but he lived mostly in Antwerp from about 1907 to the outbreak of World War I. Now, Antwerp was one of the most important ports in Europe, and most of the ships from Asia and Africa, um, it was their port of call. And the cargo often included animals that were destined to stock the new and expanding zoos of Europe. These are also the days of the big game hunters, long before any kind of legislation happened. And the casualty rates were appalling. Monkeys and apes very rarely survived. The voyage was six weeks. They were often in crates on board on the ship. When they arrived in the port, the animals that did survive the trip were auctioned off. Often there was an auction on the quayside at Antwerp. Dealers, zoo curators, um, people would come and compete for the best specimens. Because of the location of Antwerp's zoo, they often had first pick and advantage over many of the other zoos in Europe. So at the time, it was one of the largest zoos in the world. There were rare species there that you could not see elsewhere. So it was a rich source of subject matter. As terrible of a time as it was for the zoos, and this is a time, too, that zoos are becoming very popular. There's always been zoos in Europe, but at this time in the early 20th century, with the rise in interest of this, you know, this study, the access to non-European specimens, the unfortunate effects of colonization, everything that's terrible is happening in the world and kind of how we're understanding and talking about it today. 
but it was also a time of scientific study and observation and scientists trying to understand the world around them. You know, this is the, the springboard that drives Bugatti's art. And he becomes very interested in understanding the animal world. They're realistic. There's an incredible attention to detail, not only in just the physicality of the animal, but also in the sensitivity in which it's portrayed. You almost have a sense that they're moving. If you think of somewhat of a modern parallel, think of Edgar Degas' ballerinas and how Degas was trying to capture ballerinas and movement and how the human body moved. Bugatti is trying to do the same thing, but with animals. So Bugatti actually worked beside the animal enclosures. He could work uninterrupted all day long, just watching and observing the animals, sort of how they moved, how they acted, how they slept, how they ate, just observing animal behavior. And the zoo really didn't have any objection to easels or other equipment that really proliferated all over the gardens. Zoos actually helped promote artists by holding regular exhibitions of their work, which were then in turn bought by collectors. These bronzes, whether large or small, they were, they were produced in editions of either 6 to 12 copies, and they were avidly collected. Um, there was a middle-class clientele that couldn't get enough of these works, and Bugatti was really working to satisfy a demand. He used a lost wax process in creating these works, so he would sculpt the work in clay first. A plaster cast would then be made, and... Then with that plaster mold, there would be like a negative rubber mold, um, like a gelatin kind of substance would have been used in Bugatti's time in these casting studios. The rubber mold is then made in several pieces depending on how complex or difficult it, it is trying to get every, every element. And it's then dipped in an outer casing of plaster to help strengthen it. Liquid wax is then poured into the mold and allowed to cool. And then as it cools, that liquid core is tipped out. So basically what you have on the inside of the mold is a layer of wax. Think about how you light a candle and you blow it out. And have you ever sort of played with the wax as you kind of run it around the jar, right, in the glass and kind of coat the inside of the glass? When you think about doing that, it's, it's, it's really a step in the lost wax process. The plaster casing is then removed, and then the rubber mold is actually peeled away from that wax. So what you have as a result, the wax is an absolute perfect replica of the original clay model. And Bugatti would even sometimes exhibit his sculptures at this stage and exhibit them in the wax. After the wax fully dries, more plaster is kind of poured and patted on around that wax mold, totally enveloping it, and all, so it's all in one piece. And then through a system of runners of teeny little tubes, that wax is melted out. Hot bronze is poured in and allowed to cool. After the bronze is cooled, that plaster mold is then chipped off and discarded, but the bronze still needs a lot of work. This is actually a term called chasing. If you're chasing a bronze, it really means that you're removing all of those tiny little tubes that the hot wax 
was poured out of and replacing all of those little details on the surface of the sculpture where those little tubes went into the center, um, as well as smoothing out any other faults. Um, and so this work is generally done by like assistants in the bronze workshop or, or the atelier, um, generally supervised by the artist. Now, think about the color, too. Look at how beautiful. It's, it's very, what a rich bronze brown color that this giraffe has. The patina is achieved by coating the sculpture with different varieties of acids or alkalis that work on the surface that sort of interact with the bronze then to produce the color that the artist wants. So you're basically speeding up the natural process of oxidation, right? This is why if you look at bell towers, how they've gone green over time and they are occasionally restored to their original shiny appearance. Bronzes or patinations can range through a variety of colors, whether that's very, very pale brown, a deep, rich kind of chocolate color, a variety of antique greens can be created. Sometimes almost bronzes can even be gilded or silvered. And for his sculptures, Bugatti actually preferred the darkest patina possible, almost like a black, which he achieved by applying a solution of ammonia with heat. And then when polished, after you polish this, this creates this incredible glow, this sheen on the surface of the sculpture. So it's all of these steps that have to happen and to take place in order to produce a sculpture like this. Sadly, his career spanned only 15 years, but he produced well over 150 bronze sculptures, 